Welcome to Shed Life. All right, Mr. Umar Sadiq, welcome to the Shed, mate. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you for having me. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks, very well. Um, let's just start off by asking, mate, how you sort of got through lockdown and stuff? I mean, how did it affect your training and things like that? How difficult was it? It affected my training based on not being able to train in my coaches for the most part of it and being in an actual gym, so the facilities that a gym would provide I never had at home. And specifically to boxing, I don't have a punching bag at home. But in terms of everything else, it was fine, man. It wasn't difficult at all. It was calm. Mm. I mean, professional athletes, we spend a lot of our time, in, especially when you're in an, in an individual sport, you spend a lot of time in solitude. So, you know, just staying home, training in the park, training at home, it's calm. Awesome. Awesome. It's good to hear. I mean, I guess a lot of it, you could do a lot of cardio and stuff like that, right? So that side of mm-hmm. it didn't really get affected. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, mate. Um, so I want to start right at the beginning, man. Like, I know um, born and bred in Nigeria, right? Um, we had one of my mates on his home a few weeks ago on the pod, and he was going, he, he was, um, he also came here later on, but he came from Nigeria. We're talking a lot about the culture there, the Who lifestyle. Sorry? Who was this, sorry? Uh, my mate, uh, he came on the pod a few weeks ago, uh, Uzoma. He'd done an episode with us, and he was talking right. to us about, um, yeah, life in Nigeria and this and that. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm intrigued to hear your sort of take on it, how it was like growing up there, and maybe let's start at the beginning. I mean, for me, I just personally never had a stable upbringing. So, I was, you know, most people live in the same house or with the same family. I mean, growing up, I lived with three, maybe four families. Wait, wait one, two. Yeah, I lived with about, yeah, three or four families, depending on how you look at it, growing up. And um, up until the age of 12, which is when I moved here, and I was lived with my mum and my brother, so... It wasn't that stable, but for the longest part of it, from the age of four till 10, I was living with my dad in Nigeria. And it was a stable household with, um, you know, my dad was a middle-class man in Nigeria. So we lived a very comfortable life. And, you know, I'm grateful for that. But the disparity between rich and poor in Nigeria is so wide and it's so in your face that although I was being raised in a middle-class home, I was still privy to a lot of the suffering that was going on. But also a lot of the affluence that was um, that was available. So I got to see, I guess, from a young age, the disparity between rich and poor. And that plays a big part in making me a person today who appreciates everything he has. I mean, every day I give thanks for having food, shelter, and my health. Well, health first. So in no particular order. But those are the three main things. Everything else is a bonus, you know. Yeah, no, Absolutely. I mean, how different was society, though? I know, I know you said, uh, you touched on it, but how different was the society leaving Nigeria at the age of 12, like you said, and uh, coming to a new country, basically? So when you're young, obviously, everything's an experience for you, right? Everything's new. But how, how different was that? <laughs> the main difference is, living in Nigeria, I used to watch a lot of American TV shows and movies. And I had this vision of coming over to England, and it was going to be white picket fences, living in the suburbs. And I turned up to Tottenham. I was like, this is not what <laughs> This is not what I'm doing. And you've got to imagine, I mean, when I was 12, it was a long time ago. We didn't have, we didn't have smartphones in those days, you know. 
So it wasn't like I was having pictures sent to me in social media or whatnot. You just sort of went off what you, what you had on TV. And yeah, the reality was a uh, start difference to the expectation. But, you know, I'm a survivor. I adapt uh, wherever I'm put in and adapted and I thrived. I'm awesome. thriving. <laughs> yeah, definitely still thriving. Um, all right, so mate, then you uh, you were here for from 12... When did you first enter a gym and what was uh, the sort of um, catalyst for that reason? Uh, I mean, I've been in some, I guess you mean specifically a boxing gym, right? Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, boxing gym. Yeah, so at 16, I started boxing in a uh, youth project. It was just like, it was, there was this guy, Tony Tessa, he's actually one of my coaches today still. I have two coaches. And he was doing boxing sessions in this youth project. And... Uh, I went in and just wanted to be the best person that he trained. Simply because he told me I was going to be a world champion and then told everyone else in the room. And I just felt like he needed to mean it when he tells me. <laughs> so I followed him around to different places that he was going to, which included boxing gyms, you know, other youth projects and community centers, things of that nature. And I just did it for about three years as a keep fit. I just really enjoyed being healthy, you know, commit personal development as a whole. You know, I felt I liked the way I felt in looking after myself, looking uh, watching what I'm eating, so eating right. And there was definitely a big difference between the feeling I had, like I said, eating well and working out regularly, uh, to then to the, what I felt like before I'd started doing it. And I guess to some extent I grew accustomed to it. And eventually it just got to a point where I was doing the boxing training and eating well for so long. I was never a fat kid or anything. It's just, um, or a big kid. I just did it just generally interested in health. Mm. And it got to a point where I was sparring people who were winning national championships and, you know, getting the better of them at times. And it was just, eventually I just got to a point where I thought, you know, I've got something here. I've got to do something with it rather than look back later on and regret, may or possibly regret letting it slip away. So I started boxing for that reason. And yeah, here we are today. What what was the kind of the switch or the moment that you decided um, to sort of pursue as a like full time career, if you like? Because you, I'm I'm right in saying you were doing many other things at the time, right? You weren't always you yeah. weren't just in the gym, boxing gym. Right. So, sixteen, I first laced up a pair of gloves. Nineteen, I decided I was going to challenge myself as an amateur boxer against other amateurs in the country and just see how far I can take it. I just wanted to have an experience, really, to say I actually did this thing. But then, before you knew it, because I'm naturally competitive, and part of the reason why I was doing this for so long as a keep fit was because I was, it was intentionally trying to be better than everyone that was training around me, whether or not they were a fire. Mm -hmm. So when I decided I was going to box, clearly I'd want to be the best. So be the best in the North, North East London, be the best in London, be the best in England, and so on and so forth. Then I got to a point about when I was 23, 24 years old, I think, the day about, where I had a couple of, you know, dodgy decisions in the national championships one year after the other. And I felt that a person of my level of discipline and, um, yeah, just a person of my level of discipline and commitment would be able to apply those traits to anything else in life and be successful. So I thought, well, boxing is not for me. And I never wanted to be famous either. And, you know, the only way to make it in boxing is to be a famous. I wanted to be wealthy, but not famous. So I went about trying to find myself, so to speak. I mean, I went uni in that time as well. 
And then I went, I did some charity work abroad for three months in Nicaragua. I went traveling a lot. I was just trying different things. I was managing a music group. Oh, nice. Uh, just kept, yeah, just trying to find what my thing was, what my passion was. And then I went traveling and came back and decided I was going to move out of England. And I got a job for the sake of being able to be approved for a mortgage. And um, whilst at that job, I was still keeping fit in the only way I know how to keep fit, which is through boxing. Ended up having a couple of more fights, then became English champion. With no intention of being a boxer, I was taking these fights in that five days notice, you know, and uh, winning. Then 2016, the Nigerian Olympic team, uh, you know, reached out to me because I was, I was training with them in 2012. They make it to the Olympic qualifiers out of injury. So 2016, they reached out and said, look, we're recruiting or, you know, we're selecting our team. We have a few people at your weight, but if you want to come at your own expense, you can come to see if you can make it onto the team and then we'll take you on. So I took on paid leave from my office job at the time and I went out there, made it onto the team. And then we were in camp, literally living in the, within the same compound was the accommodation, the gym and the compound was in the national stadium. So... Nice. Um, you know, there's a stadium, there's the boxing gym, and then there's your accommodation all in the same place, you know. So I never had to leave. But I really enjoyed the life, you know, being out in the sun uh, or just being in a warm climate and then trek. It was literally, but he would say, you know, sleep, eat, box, but it was literally that. And I just fell in love with the process again. I was like, I really, really love boxing. And then, you know, I was 28, I think, at the time. Yeah, I was 28. I remember just thinking to myself at the time, you cannot, Uma, you've still got a window to do something here, but you, you've only got a window open for so long, you know. You, in about five years' time, you can't decide to do this. Mm -hmm. so I thought, I'm just going to honour the all the work that I've put in over the years, the skill set that I've developed. that's allowed me to be able to be in an Olympic team in the first place. And just the fact that I enjoy it and I love it, clearly I've got something natural. So I decided... Whatever happens with my with my Olympic journey, I was always going to turn pro after the 2016 Olympics, and and that's what I did. I started to work on becoming professional. The process took me about a year, and then September 2017, I made I made my debut. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, background. And mate, you said you were thinking of uh, leaving the country um, when you when you were during this uh, break period. Where were you thinking of going? Did you have anywhere lined up or anything? Somewhere where the sun shone most of the times of the year. <laughs> I'm still going to leave. After yeah. time. So when I decided to turn professional, I knew it was going to mean that I'm based here for at least, you know, three, maybe four years. Mm. Um, but now I'm very close to the point now where I'm going to be able to leave. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'll that's be awesome. at this country at least half the time of the year, uh, especially during the winter months. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm, made, I'm made for the sun, basically is what it yeah. is. No, I get yeah, it. man. But like, um, in terms of taking your following with you and like fighting out of a certain country, were well, you looking maybe to um, fight now out of South America or still be based in your, you know, that, So my career will still be based here. I'll just live elsewhere and then, you know, have camp elsewhere as much as possible. But, you know, Frank Warren will still be my promoter. I'll still be British based. And uh, especially when I've got fights in and around, you know, the warmer climates of periods of the year here, such as now, I'd more than likely have my camp here. You know? Yeah, yeah that makes sense. That's quality. I mean, let's uh, go back to um, your sort of uni days and uni life and stuff like that. Um, how tricky was it uh, sort of managing, you know, all that studying and this and that 
as well as being uh, you know training quite because even though you said you weren't pro at the time but you were training hard enough to get into like you know uh, trials with the olympic teams and stuff like that mm-hmm. how difficult was that period i didn't feel it being difficult i just i didn't have a uni life i think i wasn't even sure uni life was a thing until you know after people talking about their uni experiences and i was like okay well i missed out on that one yeah <laughs> you know because <laughs> i would literally go and do what i gotta do and get out because i had mm-hmm. to and uh I was fortunate enough to win the British University Championships as well, actually. Um, yeah, I, I didn't think about it like that. I was, I was working as a youth worker, part-time. I was studying full-time at university. I was managing a music group, and I was buying and selling cars all at the same time. Oh, yeah, and then the boxing, of course. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot to juggle, um, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. But, again, at the time, I just didn't even think of it like that. It was just, it was just what I did. So every day was busy from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. But at no point did I think, oh, Uma, you're really busy. I guess I was just that focused. Yeah. But that's the thing. Like, it's rare to find people who have that much focus, right? And that's why you see it, like, with the sort of elite athletes and people with real drive because they've got a vision. What at that time, because you were doing so much stuff, and like you said, you weren't sure where the boxing was taking. You were just sort of going through the process and, you know, jumping through those hoops. But... What was that point you could see? Like, what was that focus which made you have all that drive to, you know, juggle so many things in at such a young age? Self-development, a commitment to self-development, definitely. You have to do the self-work. Everyone has to. I mean, there's a guy I listen to. He's a guru. His name's Sadhguru. And he likens the human body to a computer. And he says, the human body is the most sophisticated computer in the planet. Do you agree? And I think most people would. And then he said, when you get a new computer or a new electronic device that you've never seen before, what's the first thing you do? And it's typically you read a, you know, a reader's user's manual, or you find out how to use it somehow. But for whatever reason, with the human body, mind, spirit, we've ignored all of that. And we just try to half-ass it and you know, button bash and hope for the best, you know? So I, I, I have a commitment to personal development and I guess um, that's always helped me just wanted to better myself, um, fulfill my full potential. A tree would always grow to its complete potential, you know, but human beings don't always flourish to the best, to the full potential. But then also I know that when I fulfill my complete potential, my full potential, or the closer I get to it, the more good I'll be able to do in this world. Mm. You know, I believe in oneness, which is part of the drive. So, yeah, with that in mind, again, it just makes it easy to keep going, <laughs> especially yeah. when I call that there are so many people that will benefit from my success. It, it then that's the difference between I feel tired and I can make a deal with myself. I've got another a second training session and I might think, oh, not really bothered. Or I might be in the training session and it gets a bit hard and I think, oh, I'll just make it easy. This I can make that deal with myself, you know, mm-hmm. but can I make that deal with all the people that I think I'm going to help in the future? You know, all the thousands, hopefully millions, maybe even billions of people. Can I make that deal with them? And chances are no. I've seen enough suffering. I've seen suffering, like I said, at the start of the conversation. And you can't tell someone who's suffering that you could have helped them, but you didn't because you didn't quite feel like it. You didn't quite feel like, you know, working a little bit harder or putting in an extra couple of hours. You can't look at them in the face and say that. Therefore, you should just be doing it. So that keeps me driven. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's really interesting stuff. 
So hey, tell me more about this guru and like how long you've been following him and uh, is it sort of you just take his, his words as wisdom and sort of try and ingrain it into your brain or is there stuff you do practically to help follow that sort of um, uh, path he may be laying out? Yeah, so there's him, there's a bunch of, I listen to a bunch of people. What I do is I try to learn from other people's experiences but also when people speak words of wisdom that I, well, words that I deem to be wise and they resonate with me, I'll give them attention. So, you know, it's not just him. The other people I listen to as well and read books of, I read a lot of books. And again, it's all part of the process of personal development and you have to be open. You know, it's hard to say, it's hard to say which meal on a menu is the best meal if you're, if you haven't tried all the others. And I find a lot of people have that mind, especially when it comes to things like spirituality and religion, you know. And most, most of the times, the religion that they're looking at weren't even their choice. They were just born into it. They could have been born into any other religion. Born into a religion. And you go, no, nah, this is the best religion. I ain't got to look any of this. Well, you haven't tried a whole menu. You don't know. <laughs> you don't even understand the restaurant. You know, so I try to be free of that. And I, 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 my mind's very open in terms of hearing what people have got to say and really pondering and considering you know, things that are raised. And yeah, so I, I've been on this spiritual journey, I guess, for a long time. My dad was a Muslim and my mum is Christian. So from a young age, I've always questioned, you know, Christian or Islam. And then eventually it was like, well, dad, is, dad was a Muslim, mum is a Christian. Well, what if dad was a Hindu and mum's a Jew? You know, <laughs> so then I was like, well, yeah, that's actually quite right. What if that, what if that was the case? What if one of them was Sikh or whatever? So I started to look at other religions to see, to get, you know, to keep an open mind. And then um, naturally over time, I've just evolved in the way that I have, and which is, they're all basically just saying, be a decent person and treat everyone how you'd like to be treated, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's like the fundamental, I guess, isn't it? For, for most yeah. religions. Religion's kind of a man-made thing, so yeah, yeah. it depends on what you believe in, but it's, I think it's very similar. Yeah. Different right. routes to the same um, destination. Yeah, exactly, as well said. All right, mate, uh, just going back through the, um, the period in your 20s when you said um, you kind of not uh, fell out of love with boxing, but you just weren't focused on it at the time. Do you know what I, mean? you, you, I think you said it was uh, down to a few dodgy decisions and things like that. Um, yeah. So, so a couple of questions. How far, how far apart did you step away from boxing and um, how difficult was that decision because it was so ingrained in your day-to-day -day life, like your day, daily routine kind of thing. Well, what boxing became very quickly in my life was my method of keeping fit. You know, like I said, I started to keep fit for three years. Mm. And with my commitment to health, it means, and it's always meant that whenever I want to stay in shape, I'll just do boxing training. So even when I decided boxing, boxing was no longer what I wanted to do as a living or, you know, pursue as a career or whatever, I was still doing it just for fitness. Um, but my, the time out of the ring when I felt like I was, I was potentially just not going to be a boxer. Well, actually, I was looking at other things. Probably like from 2013 to 2015, thereabouts, that sort of period. So, yeah, I had about two years of, you know, exploring whatever options, like I said, there were for me in life. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting, man. Awesome. I uh, mate. Uh, I know that when I was uh, sort of reading up on some of this stuff, you said you were sort of a plant-based athlete. Um, mm -hmm. is that, has that been the case throughout your whole life or is that, was that something you came about and decided to do later on? I, I, I officially became plant-based three and a half years ago, so 1st of January 2017. 
it was a it was something that I arrived at gradually, unintentionally actually. I never considered being a vegan. Uh, a lot of people say vegan. I try to avoid that word. It yeah. scares a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just happened naturally over time. You know, through learning things again, I was real first for knowledge. I started to cut cut dairy out of my life. Then I cut red meat out of my life. So it was just poultry and fish. And then eventually I got to a point where I believed enough in the, the natural aspect of, you know, eating from the earth and evolving without causing pain and suffering to human beings and animals. And then learning things about, you know, farming practices and what the fact that chemicals and medicines being fed and pumped into mm -hmm. the animals and all that. So it was health, it was moral, environmental, all of that. And it just got to a point where I was just like, well, oh, 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 this is too much. I don't want any part of this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, some people, yeah, some people would argue otherwise, but I think the fact that there were so many arguments against eating meat, you know, it's the whole old saying, there's no smoke without fire. Mm. But also biologically, we're not, you know, we're not designed to eat meat. We have really long intestines, like every other, you know, herbivore has. Carnivores always have intestines that are at least three times shorter than ours. They have much stronger stomach acids than we do. People say we've got canines. We don't. These, we, we, all carnivores in animal kingdom lack the ability to chew food. They can only tear and swallow. We have to chew our food. We're not carnivores, you know, and. Um, but that's another debate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that's interesting. I haven't thought about that. Um, yeah. Mate, you know a lot of people who go on these sort of um, plant-based diets and stuff, they sort of swear by how much um, sort of understandably cleaner and lighter they might feel. But in terms of energy levels, so for yourself, obviously, elite athlete in the boxing gym, is that, is that, the, is that the case? You, do you feel you have that much more energy from being plant-based athlete? Definitely. There's a lethargic feeling that comes of eating meat that you don't realize you have when you're eating meat because I ate meat for all my life up until three and a half years ago. Now, when I first went plant-based January to, um, 17, what I said to myself was I'd allow myself to eat meat at Christmas so, so as not to be um, a pain or a nuisance to the family, right? Mm -hmm. So Christmas 17, I had meat. I remember eating it thinking the only appeal to this is actually the seasoning, the actual substance itself, the texture is nothing it's, it's actually dead like it's, mm. i'm literally eating dead animal <laughs> um and then so anyway i ate meat through that period and then so for about a week of eating meat through christmas period we went back in the gym and it was a lethargic feeling i had that went all the way into my gut and that was a light bulb moment because it was a familiar feeling it was a feeling i always used to have but i hadn't had it for a whole year and now when i recognized it, i was like this is fucking horrible and right there and then I was like, it's the meat, it's the meat. <laughs> and I, I genuinely remembered that this was a familiar feeling and it was just normal. This is how you felt when you started warming up. And I was like, no, I haven't had this for a year. Like this is dead. And then after that, I've just never gone back. Oh man, that's quality. Yeah. <laughs> and right. then also, you get, what they tell you, you get the argument about my battery's dying. So you get the argument about uh, needing power. Um, you need, Hold on, I'm going to try something. Mm -hmm. Am I still the right way up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Yeah, you get the argument about needing meat for power. And I say to people, well, I had six fights in 2019 and I stopped five of the opponents. 
Mm. And then they go, and then some people cheekily say, well, if you had meat, you would have stopped six of them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but either way, the point it still is, if I'm stopping five out of six grown trained fighters, mm. clearly I don't need the meat to her. No, exactly, exactly. What about the argument people talk about um, protein and shit like, because obviously you're um, obviously in fit shape, muscular and all that. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming you get by quite well there, right? There you go. I mean, three and a half years in, fit, strong, knocking people out. Perfect. <laughs> what, what's there to say? Yeah, exactly. I'm, li- I'm living proof. I'm a living case study that you don't need to meet. <laughs> yeah, nah, well said. All right, mate, let's move on to some of the boxing now, um, your pro career. Um, can you talk us through that sort of moment you first walked into that professional uh, bout? Like, how different was it from all the previous experiences you've had, whether it be in the gym or the amateur fights, you know, all that? Because, uh, you know, a lot of people say the amateur game is almost like a completely different sport to professional. Yeah. What, what can you tell us about those differences and the feelings you felt going into that? Uh, I, had, I had a lot of good experience in the amateurs. So I was able to box in different places, different venues, different countries against different types of opponents. The main difference, really, because most of my amateur career, I spent boxing against people that were trying to beat me. Mm. And elite fighters, sorry. So I only had nine novice-level fights, and then the rest were all elite. So the main difference was having someone in there who I was supposed to be, and who actually wasn't offering too much back. So that was a bit of a wall. And then the other thing was thinking more like a brand, actually trying to win the fight whilst entertaining the crowd. Whereas in amateurs, you just won the fight by any means. You know, so those yeah. are the main differences for me. But that, other than that, you're still getting in the ring and having a punch up. I guess the gloves are different. You feel the gloves a lot more. But those things that you just said about creating that brand, um, how did you go about doing that? Like, do you do you have now certain things which you sort of fixate on when sort of mentally prepare that, oh, I need to do this in front of the, the fans or the TV cameras or in the build-up to make sure that I'm trying to sell Umas, you know, as a brand kind of? Is, is there things which yeah, you're trying to I do? Mean, all I do is I remember, I remind myself before that I've got the source. <laughs> so just be myself. <laughs> I mean, like, even coming on this, until we jumped in the call, I didn't even know what the format was. I just always yeah. believed that I've got the source of so be yourself. And then... Um, no, we respect you coming on um, as well, man. So thanks for that. Cool. Thank you, man. That's cool. And then sometimes before I do something, I might set my intention just close my eyes, meditate for a minute, set my intention, this is what I expect out of this, and then I just go into it. And I think natural is always best, and the viewers can usually see that. Mm. But also, when it's natural and honest, you know, it's less effort. Yeah, that's true. It's uh, you just, I guess, focusing on the, the fight, which is the main thing, the main reason you're there, right? Yeah. You don't have to worry about all exactly. the thrills and all that. Um, yeah. But being on TV for the first time, like you know, in a professional setting. You know, the crowd must have been bigger. The, you're very aware the cameras are there and people are watching you. Like, did that not create any sort of nerves or tension in your boxing style or anything at all? No, so, like I said, in the amateurs, I've boxed in different nations and on different, in different venues. And I've boxed in venues that are huge but empty. <laughs> you know, I've boxed in venues that are tiny and empty, but also tiny and packed where you can barely see someone that you... You know, you can barely pick people out of the crowd because they're all falling over each other. Mm. So, you know, the amateur experience I had has helped set me to being adaptable in different environments, 
but also my upbringing, you know, like I said, it wasn't too stable. I had always, from young, I've always had to adapt to wherever I was. And then the whole thing of being on TV, no, that's, I've, I've never been starstruck by anybody. The only person I thought I'd be starstruck by was Floyd Mayover. And then I saw him and I was like, oh, he's just another guy. You know, so um, I, I hardly get gassed, basically, with anything, yeah. with people, with events. Uh, very calm and, you know, I stay steady. And then also in addition to that, I do modeling and a little bit of acting. So I'd been on TV anyway before. So, yeah, so it wasn't like a new thing that made me feel like, you know, oh my God, like this is so huge. Like, I'd been on TV campaigns and stuff like that. So fortunately, I, I never had those pressures. Yeah. yeah. And also nice? when you're in the ring, sorry, you, you mentioned being able to see the cameras. I guess you see the cameras at the start when the announcements are on, but once you know the ref calls you to the center of the ring to give final instructions, at that point, I barely even see the ref. I just see the opponent. Yeah, you got like tunnel vision, I guess, right? Everything else blurs out around you. It feels like there's a floodlight down on the ring, and everything outside the ring is dark. Mm. Oh, that's yeah. funny. Uh, mate, so talking through your professional career. Um, Less, what was some? What has kind of been your best moment so far, in your opinion? Like, what's given you the most sort of elation so far? My last fight with Cody, because I lost the fight end of twenty um, October twenty eighteen. I had a horrid time going into the ring, so I, I was a shadow of myself in that ring, and you know, unfortunately, I didn't get a decision in a close fight. And that was a very close fight. Yeah, I got written off after that. And I had to go off and box in small shows, travel around the country to box. And it was a long way back. And then I finally got an opportunity to box on live on BT Sport against, you know, this prospect who was meant to... I was really, I was putting that fight for him to have a good name on his record, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I was 12 to 1 underdog and I upset the odds. I beat him convincingly. And I knew there and then that, okay, you're back. I'm back on track. And yeah, so that was the best moment for me so far in my career. Yeah, um, that I mean that was a quality fight. I watched that one, and um, it, it's now set you up, I guess. Is it for the British Commonwealth um, title? Is that was that an eliminator? So, what's what's the sort of process? What's was, happening it now? It was an eliminator for the British title, and then, uh, but it wasn't a final eliminator. But either way, still, I was offered the British title fight after with the Commonwealth to go with it. So. You know, yeah, happily going on to grab them straps and bring them home. Awesome. Yeah, hopefully that'll happen. Man. So what, what's the latest with that uh, fight? Um, just for our listeners, obviously, who may not uh, uh, who may not have followed your career properly. So basically, I boxed February the 22nd against Cody, won that, mm -hmm. went on holiday, came back early March. I got offered to fight Lerone Richards for the British and Commonwealth titles in April, mid-April. So I only had, you know, five weeks or so to get ready for the fight. I took it anyway. And um, then COVID happened, you know, so things got pushed back. And we were told to be ready for when lockdown was done. I stayed ready. Lockdown was done. We got offered a date. He said he couldn't do it because he had a baby. We got offered another date. He said he's only a week after his baby. He got offered a, yeah, another date and he said he wasn't ready. And then he was also talking about can he take the fight but without the British title on the line. Um, viewers read into that what you may and then he was told no you've got to put the title on the line so now he's, and then it turns out he's got to anyway he's realised that even if he doesn't put on the line at this point you sign to fight you lose it regardless 
so you know, Frank Warren, our promoter, listed a, a announced a list of shows that go up until the end of August, and there's another wave of shows they're going to be announced from September onwards and hopefully we're going to get, be able to get it on in September. So I'm just waiting for confirmation on the day. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a messy situation, but that's, I, I'm assuming the life of a boxer, right? Because you hear so many fights which should be made and it's, as a fan, you think, why can't they just sit down and get this fight yeah, done? But if someone craps themselves and says they're having a baby, as if he's the one carrying a baby. But anyway, <laughs> that's that. <laughs> Uh, fair enough. Anyway, good luck for that fight, whenever that might be, man. So, yeah. hopefully, come home with the titles, like you said. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, what do you about this one. There you go. Um, what do you think? Like um, the biggest pitfalls are in professional boxing. Like now, you've seen it from the inside. Like I guess you're privy to the, even the business side of it. Things now as well, right? Being promoters or managers, whatever. But what do you feel is the biggest pitfalls of the sport in the professional game? I think for the sport in general, people just need to be more open. I, I think a lot of people are very stuck in the ways. This is how it's always done. This is how we do it. Um, that old school mentality. I think more people just need to embrace and move on with the times. You know, it's part of the reason why um, some promoters are doing really well and others aren't doing it as well. Yeah, just just move on. Just move with the time. Boxers especially move with the times. Yeah, Maybe fair fans. enough. Yeah. Actually, you know, just on promoters, man, I'm, I've, I've always been intrigued um, when a fighter joins a promotional team, right? And I'm always like, is it like you have the option, you go to a promoter and, you know, this is my resume, this is what I can do, sign me up. Or is it a case of they scout you? Like, how, how basically did you come to be with um, uh, Frank, Swar- Frank Warren? It's a bit of both. I mean, it's, what, what people need to understand is it's like anything else. Is that in any other industry? If you were... Uh, a really good analyst or um, let's say computer technician or something mm-hmm. working in a tech space, you would sometimes apply for jobs and other times you get headhunted. And also the contract that you get is depending on the value that you can offer. It's exactly the same thing. Okay. So that was the case with uh, joining Frank basically. Was, uh, yeah. So I reached out to Frank. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. <clears throat> All right, mate. Um, in your opinion, like this is one thing, um, <clears throat> sorry, asked someone else um, a few weeks ago. So I was quite intrigued by this. Like, what, what do you think, like youngsters, you know, thinking about getting into the sport of boxing, what do you think they need to sort of possess the most in terms of whether it's a soft skill or not necessarily talent itself? But what do they need to do, in your opinion, to try and, you know, put themselves in the best possible stead to be successful with really, the sport? Willing to do whatever it takes. There are too many people that love the lifestyle. They lo- not lifestyle. They love what it looks like. They love the highlight moments, mm. but they don't love the lifestyle and they're not committed to going through with the lifestyle. And a lot of people forget that. What you see on TV, what you see on social media are the highlight moments. What you fail to see are the fact that I've just come back from a gym and I was 30 minutes late to this call because gym time run over and I've got to get off this call in a bit because I've got some other things to do. Yeah. You know, what you don't see, what people don't see is the pain, the fact that last week I was going through the whole week with my body aching, but still having to get up to do more than one session a day, having to eat only meals that I'm supposed to eat when I'm on tables and around people that are eating all types of things, being thirsty and craving 
know, some type of a juice or whatever, but knowing that you can only drink water, that type of stuff. So it's like, it's really living the life, being that it committed to your life. It's watching boxing instead of watching a TV series, you know, but knowing the balance of when to do which, it's, it's everything. It's being disciplined enough to keep people engaged and taking time out to speak to the likes of you, you know, that type of stuff. It's, it's basically, you've got to be willing to be committed and live the life of the person that you're trying to be. Yeah, no, very well said, man. Awesome stuff. All right, well, I know you do have to go. I'm not going to keep you much longer. I'm going to end on one question, which I've asked um, fellow uh, pro boxer we spoke to last week. Um, can you give us your um, top, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in current boxing climate, your top pound for pound best boxers, in your opinion? You can't say yourself, obviously. <laughs> All right, I won't say myself. I'll say top boxing city. Number one, Canelo. So Saul Canelo Alvarez, number one. Um, and then the rest in no particular order. We've got Terence Crawford, um, Vasily Lomachenko. You've got... Pound for pound depends on what you're basing on. But I'm just going to say some of the fighters that I've watched in recent time that I think um, box really well and really good. Um, so I've named three there, haven't I? Yeah, you named three, yeah. Yeah, I would give Alexander Usyk, Tyson Fury based on his last fight, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that was one of the most impressive heavyweight performances in God knows how long. Um, those would be the main ones, actually. I'll, I'll leave it as that. Mm, that's good. Awesome, man. All right. Um, actually, mate, sorry, one more quick thing before we let you leave. Um, I, I noticed on your Instagram, it's something I mean to ask you. Um, one of the posts you mentioned is, um, I choose to feed, uh, I choose to, and then hashtag feed 1000. Can you elaborate a bit about, more about that? Because I was, I was just going to ask you what that was, because I was quite intrigued by that post. Yeah. So this doctor, Dr. Shewan, who is part of the first ever African bobsled team in the Winter Olympics, um, they're Nigerian. Uh, so she is a doctor, she's US-based. And she started this initiative to, you know, feed 1,000 families in Nigeria and gaining contribution from people around the world with the use of athletes in the diaspora. So Nigerian athletes that are based outside of Nigeria. And obviously I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. So I was very happy to jump in and get involved in that. You know, I mean, someone who spends three months doing charity work in Latin America is clearly someone who's you know, into this and through lockdown, I've been helping where I can with different charities and sometimes with some people and stuff. Um, it gets overwhelming. Sometimes I get a lot of uh, requests from people to help, but I have to be selective because you can't help everyone. But anyway, so this came up and uh, I was more than happy to jump in, contribute, spread the word and get more people to contribute. Then the, really the initiative is about feeding, like I said, you know, 1,000, um, 1, feeding 1,000 in different parts of Nigeria, so covering the entire nation rather than just concentrating on one particular place. And the idea was to, or is, because we're doing it, is to supply families with non, you know, food that's perishable, obviously all food is perishable, but dry food, so foods that can yeah. last, you know, things like rice, mm. tinned food, that type of stuff. So they've got access, they've got food over this time because, you know, for example, in a lot of Western countries, we've had the privilege of, you know, and the, benefit of furloughs and you know all types of grants and loans but in a place like Nigeria they haven't had that and 
a lot of these people, they live hand to mouth. So they work mm-hmm. on a day and there's enough food to eat for a day or two. So when they've had to lock down and things are not, you know, the economy's slowed down massively, a lot of people are literally going about food. So it's the kind of thing that touches my heart, not just because it's Nigeria, but because I've always made this association with, you know, human beings being one and everybody should be able to have access to health, food and shelter, you know, like like I mentioned earlier. So it's something that touched me and I'm really happy to be involved in it. And, you know, we've already fed one state, not the whole state, but, you know, we've delivered packages to one state where we ended up feeding twice the amount of people that we thought we would because what happened was those people who we were feeding who didn't have so much, they know what it's like to have nothing. So they ended up sharing with some of the neighbours and, you know, other you know, extended family members and stuff, which is great. And um, there's a lot of food. I hope it lasts them for some time. Um, the plan was that it would last them a few weeks. And um, yeah, so that's what that was about. Awesome. And that sounds like a really good cause. But yeah, um, like me, I know you got to go. So I just want to say thanks so much for um, talking to us and our listeners. We appreciate it a lot. Um, yeah, thank uh, you for having me, man. Uh, anytime, literally. Next time you're with the belts, maybe we'll speak again. Yeah, for sure. And laughing to the viewers, please go on my bio on Instagram, Top Boxer Sadiq. Follow me on top Twitter as well, Top Boxer Sadiq. And on YouTube, I do YouTube vlogs. But mainly go on my bio on um, Instagram to follow the link to donate to the cause Help Feed 1000. Awesome, man. Yeah, we'll post all that in the episode description as well. Um, all right, yeah. mate, good luck with your next fight and your future fights. That are, let's hopefully speak again soon. Thanks so much, yeah? Thank you, man. All right. Cheers. Cheers, all right, listeners. Bye bye. Bye bye.